ladies and gentlemen, let's get ready to rumble! Yes, it's right, I am back. You might remember my voice from Politiki. Welcome to another episode of Politiki, a politics podcast brought to you by News24 and hosted by senior political reporter Sidi Maria. We reject a few things this time around. We're going just beyond politics and discussing the hot topics of the day. What has been intriguing, what has completely surprised me or absolutely annoyed me. That's what we'll be discussing throughout the show. So right now, I don't have a thing that's actually annoyed me per se, but I'm in panic mode. I'm a little bit afraid for myself and for many others out there because some call it us Coco V, Coco Boo, Koriri. The coronavirus has finally hit our shores. Given the scale and the speed at which the virus is spreading, we have now declared a national state of disaster in terms of the Disaster Management Act. It's been two weeks since we heard about our first case, you know, our own patient zero in KZN. And what's happened then is the epicenter has now moved to Gauteng, which is where I live. Self-isolation is now part of my vocabulary. Social distancing, like what the hell is that? But like, that's, that's my life now. And I'm assuming it's the lives of many others as we try and, 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 and ride this wave, this coronavirus wave, and pray that it doesn't take, I don't know if we're praying or meditating, but we hope that it doesn't take lives in south africa we've seen it do such damage in italy every day hundreds more dying one can't help but panic and of course there's the economic issue where we're in the country that has been struggling we've been struggling and i'm worried about whether or not my ransom cents are going to carry any weight are going to see me through anything but that's part of the conversation that we are having today coronavirus will dominate today's conversation its impact on South Africa, on South Africa's government, how well our government has responded. And yes, yes, wait, I actually earlier said that nothing annoyed me. I lied. Something did annoy me. Something did irk me. It's the ANC government. So on the Sunday, you have the president of the ANC. I thought he sounded decisive, like a head of state who had a plan for the country when he declared a national state of disaster. But you know what happened the following day? As ANC president, now in his other cap, he then tells us about how they're going to work to, you know, heighten awareness over this virus. And the answer is door to door. And I was like, yeah, how, Sway? And remember, when the president comes to your door to tell you about the coronavirus, he doesn't do it alone. His team alone is well over 80 people. So imagine all those people coming to your door to tell you about this virus. Phew, so much for social distancing. But before I get carried away, we've got Kai Sitole, a social commentator, who will tell us how he sees this playing itself out. How are you observing what we're going through as a country at the moment? Look, I think the panic itself is not something that should surprise us. And why that's become an issue is that whenever you get a pandemic of this nature, it's always going to cause anxieties. And those anxieties are amplified when people do not know what the state's approach is going to be and how they're going to contain it. And more importantly, how they're going to identify high-risk cases. So I think what has made the South African uh, approach to this quite problematic for some people is that at the beginning, it didn't look like that we were taking it seriously enough. It sounded like all we were doing is simply screening people at the point of arrival. But what is very important for us to remember is that this virus is not like an ordinary fever. It is a virus that can exist exist within your body long before we identify it. So the whole idea behind the 14-day quarantine period is to acknowledge that you may arrive at a point of entry, whether it's an airport or whether it's a seaport, and we may not pick up anything at the point of arrival, only for us to understand 10 or 11 days later that there was actually quite an infection or 
already, but it wasn't visible yet. So that becomes a unique feature of this particular virus. So I think even the government initially thought it wasn't as bad as it turned out to be. But of course, once you lose sight of the individuals that have arrived in the country and within that 14-day period, if you can't trace them properly and taste them regularly, you do run the risk that they may interact with other individuals. And that's what has turned out to be the case. Yeah, because now we also have local transmissions. So it's not just people who are coming in from abroad with the virus. They're now spreading it among South Africans. And, and you touched on the issue of government's approach. On Sunday, we're all a little bit annoyed with the president. Not a little. We're very annoyed with the president, waiting almost two hours for him to address the nation. He finally did. And some said, you know what? He's right. This is a pivotal Tumamina moment. He declared a national state of disaster. Is it enough? I think at that stage, this was probably the, far, the furthest he could go without declaring a state of emergency because obviously that changes the rules of the game altogether. But I suspect that what we really need to be able to interrogate is the measures that is put forward. Are these the type of things that actually enable us to arrest um, the spread of the virus or are these our reactionary measures? And I think what we have to deal with is the fact that in the case that the government has taken the approach that, you know, we are going to reach out to people who have traveled overseas and say, please present yourself for testing. That limits us to an audience of people who know that they've traveled overseas. It doesn't reach out to the audience of people who may have interacted with somebody like that 10 or 15 days ago and quite simply do not have a recollection of it. And the reason that recollection is also going to be very, very difficult is that we do not disclose the names of the people. So when I read a, a press statement that says that there's been an infection in Gauteng from somebody of a certain age who traveled to a particular country on a particular date, I do not instinctively think, wait a minute, this is a person that I might have interacted with because I was at the, uh, at the mm, airport, for mm. example, exchanging foreign currency at around the same time that this person is said to have arrived. So it's going to depend on a lot of people actually trying to recall, could I have interacted with this particular individual? And I think also the government's approach apparently has been to say, we try to trace who this person may have interacted with, but it's very difficult to it's imagine how to that, that person would actually then have the... Um, access to the data to say, actually, I may have seen somebody like that. This is where you get, this is how you can get over. I could so have been it, in a lift in, with so-and-so. Yeah. I could have been in a shop with so-and-so. It's very tricky. Yeah. Quickly explain the difference between a national state of disaster and a state of emergency. The rules are very different. Look, I think, obviously, a national state of disaster is in response to a particular issue that has been identified, whether it's in health, it's a health pandemic or any other similar um, event. And I think in this case, it gives the government latitude to invoke the powers that they ordinarily wouldn't have. So, of course, in cases where perhaps the contingency reserve, for example, was reserved for another purpose, mm. then now that there is a national disaster that's been declared, then you've got the legal authority to then use those particular funds. So I do think that this buys the government particular latitude in that it can really bypass some of the bureaucratic processes that we know can paralyze processes where decision-making can take forever. In this instance, because it's now been declared as a national disaster, we can at least fast track the rollout of the services that need to be rolled out. Now, the main difference is that, of course, a state of emergency serves a completely different purpose. And I think a state of emergency is not warranted at this stage. What would it look like if the country was an actual lockdown? Well, I suppose in an actual lockdown, and remember, that might be one way in which a state of emergency manifests. Yes, it's not yes. It's not restrictive. You can always simply say that under these particular conditions, we've decided these are the things that you're allowed to do, mm. and these are the things that you're not allowed to do. And the reason why it has to be such a highly regulated environment is that it doesn't 
some instances compromise what you might see as your constitutional rights, the rights of association, the rights to privacy, and which means that right now the government can actually walk in and remove you from your bed and say, well, you're we, think you're yes, yes. we think you're at risk. Yes, we think you're at risk. So therefore, we want to remove you to a quarantine facility. Now, that's obviously an invasion of your privacy yes. as defined, but it will be warranted under a state of emergency. So that all will be those particular dynamics that some of us haven't experienced, particularly if you didn't grow up during the apartheid days mm. when you didn't have people knocking down your door in the middle of the night and then taking you to the middle of nowhere. So under that particular situation, we'd all have to adapt whatever the instructions of the state are, and you cannot defy those instructions because now you'd obviously be defying the state itself. So then there'd be particular consequences that none of us actually want to confront. I want to go back to Cyril. I did feel impressed after listening to the president. How do you think he performed on Sunday? Look, I think this is probably the first time where he's tried to regain some of the political goodwill that he spent the first two years completely squandering unprovoked. And I think why we say that is that, you know, in a lot of the things that he committed to doing, everybody was willing to support him on the basis that at least we knew what it is that you said you're going to do. And then came the long wait between pronouncements and delivery. And in most of these cases, no one could understand why you made a particular commitment when you're not ready to deliver on it, because now that creates this trust gap, this trust deficit where people are saying, no, he just said that because it was a particular platform, he wanted the people in that platform to give him a standing ovation or something like that. He had no commitment to delivering on that mandate. And that becomes a problem for his legitimacy because then a lot of people simply say, yeah, we heard what you just said, but historically you never deliver on any of the things that you say, so we don't really care about what you said. And he can't afford to risk that. He can't afford to be a president that doesn't get taken seriously because then that's a crisis for all of us because in instances like this one where you need him to step up, it would be very bad if somebody said, yeah, but you never deliver on anything. So you're saying all of this, we don't trust you. We're going to look at different ways of how we deal with this particular crisis. So I think he really did step up to the moment on, on that day. Now, again, it was still just him making commitments and pronouncements. If that doesn't translate to action, if that, if that doesn't translate to us arresting, you know, the rise of the virus itself, then not much would have been achieved either. anyway. Part of what I think people need to see are committed government leaders to causes. And I think of Mbalula particularly because, not because he was wearing a blue suit at Black Coffee's luncheon on Sunday, that, that he's allowed. But the part where we know he's at that event and the following day where he's meant to be at a government event about this serious issue, he strolls in late, then says, oh, I understand there might be questions that I need to answer. So he's not even sure, but there were questions. Then he kind of stumbles through some of the answering of his own questions about what his ministry's approach will be to dealing with the coronavirus, which is quite scary because his ministry is actually where the majority of our people are, are move. Um, when you think about the taxis and the train stations, and then he, ra he randomly says, oh, we will um, test people at every train station and taxi rank. Now think about what it requires to be able to do that. The actual structures that are required in order to be able to do this that we know for a fact we don't have. We're struggling with testing people between public hospitals and the private sector as it is. So he makes this pronouncement to go back and say, oh no, we'll screen people. But it, it, there, there was never a moment on Monday, at least, where I felt that there was clarity. People are saying, well, of all the ministries that are there, this is probably the one that's the biggest risk to all of us because now that we've identified how the disease gets transmitted and the fact that, you know, people traveling and then interacting with strangers whom they cannot sanitize themselves, who they cannot keep a distance from, is a fundamental problem. 
And we know how the train system in particular works, where there's overcrowding every single hour if the train does show up. And we know that even the overloading within the taxis are things that we see. And you've seen the taxi ranks that hygiene has never been a thing in taxi ranks, for example. That's where the biggest risk is, the biggest risk of local transmission is. So this is probably the most important ministry for us to focus on and say, what have you done differently to this big taxi ranks, whether it's Bree, whether it's North or wherever it is, where you know that people congregate in the mornings, where you know that due to space limitations, they cannot possibly observe the social distance protocols. What have you done to go and actually then say, we need to do things differently? Have you put people out there, whether it's the police or whoever else who can then regulate, this is the distance you need to keep, who can then become the official state queue marshals in order just for us to ensure that what was pronounced by the government is something that we're observing at large. I haven't seen or heard anything from the Ministry of Transport that speaks to those particular issues. It is really scary. It makes one wonder what the way forward is and whether or not that minister is actually fit for purpose. And if he understands the gravity of what he's facing or the country's facing. Let's speak about the economy. And we can't have SOEs that are not functioning. And already we are in trouble. What are we looking at in terms of the of the economic outlook. This is a double whammy for South Africa yeah. because long before there was an infection, whether it was in China or Italy, we were already struggling. We were already on the low end of economic prospects and yeah. even the projections that, you know, the minister put up in his budget, those were the optimistic rather than the, you know, the actual expected outcomes. And I suspect here that now that we're going to see a lot of declining economic activity, people being discouraged from congregating in spaces where some economic activity may be driven from, people being persuaded to sit at home rather that's going to delay a lot of things that need to be done and that's going to translate into a slowing down overall of the economy and i think unfortunately for us having already started from a back foot this is only going to make the situation worse but perhaps having started from such a low base it won't be as huge as it could have been had we been starting from huge expectations and now saying dear god we're not going to get there at all the fact that this is not a South African issue, it's a global issue, and economies around the globe are experiencing a meltdown, um, stock exchanges are, are crashing everywhere, pretty much. Does that not bode well? Does that not create an opportunity for South Africa? So the important distinction here is that South Africa is not a market leader. And when I say South mm. Africa is not a market leader, a market leader is an entity, it's a country, or even an alliance of entities that are the ones that determine the direction of economic activity, that determine the pricing in the market. So those are the ones that are able to then say, well, if we react this way, then these are the consequences. We've got some element of control over that. So one example of that will be the oil producing countries where they can sit around the table and say, well, we think the oil price is, is too low or it's too high, and they can actually coordinate the activities and then redirect the entire oil price around the world. So those are the type of powers that are enjoyed by market leaders. And so unfortunately, South Africa has got a very reactionary economy in that we respect to a lot of global factors and global influences. There are very few that we ourselves are seen as the champions thereof. So there isn't anyone um, you know, knocking on the door of South Africa and saying, well, we've got a global crisis in this particular issue. Tell us which way to go and lead us into some form of nirvana prosperity. We quite simply do not have that economic clout within the global economic world. So we're simply going to be a byproduct of the slowing economic, um, the global economic outlook. It's going to hit us also. Um, the ANC's own reaction. I was very bothered by hearing this door-to-door vibe that they love so much in the ANC. And this is how the ANC says it's going to combat the spread of the coronavirus and i was like what about innovation is this not an opportunity to think differently about how you can do your job as the so-called leaders of society yeah but remember their answer was that we are modernizing we've now got an online membership system so <laughs> they're moving with the times 
2020. It, it is mm. very, very mm. difficult. Um, and remember, this is not a new conversation around just how archaic um, and ancient no. the ANC's uh, electional, uh, electionary architecture is. And I think one of the responses was that, uh, you know, it's a tried and tested method of engaging with our constituency. That's exactly what the president said. And you're thinking, dear God, you've just said that because a hundred years ago we used to go door to door and say things to people so therefore we're going to stick to that never mind the risk that it now poses mm. it was an irresponsible statement but again he was talking in his capacity as president of the ANC so at least he didn't say it in, uh, on the platform I hate the that day we before. excuse them also hold on mm. I hate that we excuse them based on the hats that they wear you're still the same guy I don't care that today you are yeah. with green, black and gold you're still the governing party my, anyway, in my the, suspicion is that a lot more people would tune in into his national address than trying to ch- listen to what the top six of the ANC true. says that's so fair. yeah that's that's one um, uh, permutation around it. And the, the, the difficult part of it is that if the ANC is going to be forced to adapt through a crisis, then they need to do that. And I don't think they should miss this opportunity to actually then say, well, now that we've got an opportunity where we need to learn to engage differently, how does that different engagement platform or a different engagement pathway work? And I think for me, I've always had the suspicion that it's much cheaper for you to actually do this thing through radio than trying to get the bodies on the ground, to get the president to go and visit you know, a particular province with his entire uh, security cluster, the helicopters involved, the jets involved, and everybody else that goes around. I, start, I think it's remarkably expensive. There must be cheaper ways of doing this thing. And maybe that's what pushes them to explore alternatives because even after this crisis is over they still have their own conferences that have to be done and even after you say the crisis is over people are still going to be very tentative to go and hang out in these particular places where there's too many people mm. whose history you do not understand until there is a universal declaration by the WHO for example that says the virus has been wholly conquered a lot more people are going to say I'm not going to go there I'm not going to put myself at risk because I don't know who's going to be there and remember the key thing here is the problem I had with the president talking about the 100 and the, and and also the chief justice talking about 70 is that now, unfortunately, some people think that it's only when there's too many people that the risk is there. The risk could be happening right now if right there's now, two or three of us, of us that are not observing those well, particular protocols. Mm-hmm. So for me, th- never mind what the quantum is that's been put on the table. You must still do the, sa- the, the safety protocols in your individual capacity. Do not buy some sense of security in the fact that, no, it was less than 60 of us. It was less than 50 of us, so therefore there is no risk. The risk exists even in the one-on-one interaction with anyone that you see. Okay, I was done. I did say that was my last question, but I've got one more. But going forward, how does this play out? That's difficult because I think the world at large is still trying to figure out what's going on and how we're going to deal with this. There are obviously, you know, scientific projections that are saying this will be the time that it peaks. This is the exponential growth. No one can explain the Italian situation. I don't think I've seen one plausible explanation that explains why it's hitting Italy so much harder than it's hitting anyone else. And no one all can explain why in China it's suddenly you know, declining at the rate that is declining and no one can explain what South Africa's unique circumstances are and how it will translate to the spread of the virus. So it's still at this stage way too early and remember scientific data mm. has to withstand the set of time. So I'd be more worried if scientists rush to pr- produce um, reports on outcomes without actually doing a proper longitudinal case study because that's what we need. So absolutely no one is in a position to do any type of predictions. We're heading into the winter as South Africa. We don't know what that means. It hasn't mm. spread to high density areas like townships and you know informal settlements we still don't know what the impact of that is going to be we still haven't seen how prasa for example or the taxes or even the bus industry reacts to it so unfortunately it's way too early for us to know where we're going 
And I'm nodding as he says this because, yes, as the picture's bleak. I, I think South Africa is going to have to rely a lot on working with other people, with other countries that might have greater capacity to really study this and then sort of come up with ways of how to deal with it. Because even today, I still don't think everybody, anyone actually has a full understanding of the scale of the crisis that you're facing. Uh, that was Kaya Sitole. I think some peg him as a political analyst, an economic analyst, a social commentator other people call you sleepers by the way just so you remember it's just one guy no it's oh. not one guy we also call you sleepers because every time we have drinking sessions with you you're the first person to pass out but anyway that was Kaya Sitole a social commentator and he's wonderful I'm never going to drink with you again <laughs> as long as you come back to the podcast I won't complain so part of what I do here at News24 is venture into the wonderful world of politics. You know, it's a massive treasure trove. I don't do it alone. There's a whole set of people who do it with us. But the one person you can define without question is my partner in crime. The one I fight with the most, but I work hardest with, has got to be... Lizeka Tandwa, my colleague here at the politics desk. She's going to join us now for our final segment, looking at what has been happening politically and a throw forward as to what developments will be expected with these particular stories. <laughs> Hi, Tini. She sounds so bored already. <laughs> <laughs> You're boring. You're such a bore. Where's your energy? Where the hell's your energy? It's gone. It's gone. We're fighting corona. corona. I have energy, man. <laughs> Lizaka, besides the fight against the Coco, mm. the Kokuri, Ausiko, mm. Rizzi. Oh, okay. Yeah, she's got many names. Okay. Uh, besides that, the politics hasn't stopped, you know. There's things happening in the governing party, happening in, the, in, in municipalities. We are headed mm. towards local government elections, so mm. you can't help but focus even... While we are worried and panicking and panic shopping and rrr, Corona, mm. you can't help but ignore things that are happening in our municipalities. Um, I'm not sure where you want to start in guiding us towards where we are and where we're going. What's your first pick? Let's let's start with uh, Tswane today. Uh, say Tswane again. I like the way you say Tswane. So the issue of Tswane has been with us for a while. You remember we've been through already two DA mayors, Solim Simanga and now Stevens Mkhalapa. Premier of Gauteng, David Makula, also placing it under administration under Section 139, specifically 1C of the Constitution, which means that council gets dissolved and then they go to elections. So we're expecting a bang election in that region. It's all very worrying, particularly because this is, one, the capital city of the country. Secondly, service delivery questions that come to mind. What about the residents? How are they faring? Are they getting services? Administration is still intact. Mm. When I talk about administration, I'm talking about uh, the uh, the the, manage, the senior managers within that municipality, uh, the the wheel is still turning in terms of that. It's only the politics side of it which has been uh, dysfunctional. I'm not saying that officials uh, within that municipality have not had their own issues, mm. but in terms of service, services are still being rendered. But in terms of the decision making when it comes to politics, when it comes to council, that is an issue. That's where uh, the buck uh, stops. So there's another hot topic is Mfuleni. They owe ESCOM a lot of money. So Mfuleni has just become one of those troubling or troubled municipalities uh, in, 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 in Gauteng. Mm. It's owing um, uh, 1.8 billion 
now. So we've always thought that Soweto actually owed more money. I mean, when you think about the president and the finance minister, who's constantly harping on about how Soweto residents don't pay, one thinks it's Soweto that's the most debted to ESCOM. The biggest debtors are Mfuleni, uh, Merafong, as well as West Rent. That's my that's <laughs> my area. But they've made some money. They've made 50 million payments. They've paid on that five zero. They've paid uh, 50 million yeah, uh, yeah. because there was... Uh, um, attachments. So ESCOM had gone to the municipality attaching all their assets. Jeepers. So and they uh, ESCOM was demanding 220 million. They can't pay that 220 million. So they made a payment negotiation and it was lowered down to 50 million. So one of the busiest MECs in Gauteng has got to be the MEC of Cooperative Governance, Labuhamayile, who not only had to play a role in Twani and that mess over there, but he also has to deal with the issue of Mfuleni and that municipality and the amount of money it owes to ESCOM. Because they are under administration, they are under Section 1391B. That is different from 1C. From the 1C, the 1C calls for an immediate election. Exactly. 1B allows for province to come in and take yes. over administration. Is yes. that accurate? That's correct. So 1B says that Maile now takes over their finances. Maile now is going to be the one who's responsible for paying their debts. What is the plan going forward? I mean, you said now they, they could only manage 50 million when Eskom wanted 200 million. What are the plans? Are there plans on paper between ESCOM and the province since they're now in charge about repayments? Let me tell you something. When we spoke to Dereta, he sounded like a very, very uh, stern businessman. And he doesn't take... We need that. He, he doesn't, yeah, he doesn't take nonsense. So he seems... He is very strong on, I want my money. I, I cannot... When I go to my lenders, when I go to my... Uh, when I'm trying to source my call, my whatever, I can't get that because I have these people who are not paying me. And this is not ex an excuse that I can make to myself service providers. So what he's saying is that come hello high water, if the municipalities which are not paying, and he's not only flagging municipalities in Gauteng, he's saying, woe unto you municipalities who are not paying because I'm going for you, I'm coming for you. And for all of those who don't know, Andre Dureta is the ESCOM CEO who's now being tasked with cleaning up that uh, utility. The ANC's conferences might have been placed on ice because of the coronavirus outbreak, but Mpumalanga remains an issue. This is the turf, of course, of the deputy president of the country and the ANC, Didi Mabuza, where it hasn't replaced him as its chairperson since he left that role in 2017 to become the ANC deputy president. The violence in that province remains an issue even now, with conferences on hold. Pumalanga has become one of the most volatile and violent provinces and not properly documented by the media, might I add. So uh, in, the couple, in the past couple of weeks, the, Pumalanga has been going through BGMs in preparation of their provincial uh, conference. Uh, these BGMs have turned violent uh, to a point where two of their, um, uh, two of their members were killed one of their councillors, one of the ANC councillors, was seen shooting at members in, in, in one of the BGM meetings. BGMs, mind you, are branch general meetings. The word on the ground in Pomalanga for us, I think you also hear the same things as I do, is that Didi Mabuza wants Refilim Mtweni to be appointed as his replacement. This province hasn't had a chair, an actual proper chair, since he left in 2017. That's how difficult it is to navigate in Pomalanga. Um, 
But what are the chances? Because what I also start sensing is people who were once loyal to Didi Mabuza are now no longer mm. loyal to Didi Mabuza. And there's something a different picture. Mm. That, that's correct, Didi. I mean, there's 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 a, a pushback against Didi's uh, powers in, in 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 the province. He also doesn't have that much time to focus on the province because of his responsibilities as deputy president. I mean, he has to be everywhere. So whoever his soldiers are, whoever his lieutenants are, his right uh, hand men are. They really have to work extra hard to ensure that he still contains and he still controls that province. Remember, going into 2022, if he wants to to still have some sort of control within the ANC, he needs his home province. He needs his home province and a couple of other provinces to ensure that he's still part of that top six. I'm going to close this off by saying even his home province is losing ground with the ANC. Yeah. <laughs> it's, not, it's not longer the second no, largest. It's the third. The took over. Yeah. And that's the other thing about going to national office, that if you don't remain in control of how you got there, mm. yes, then your position there is a very fragile thing. Mm. It might not be long-lasting. But that's, again, a story that's going to stay with us. But remember, the ANC has postponed all these conferences so they've got themselves a bit of breathing room a bit of leeway blame it on coronavirus but they've got themselves a little bit of that i'm going to leave it at that with my colleague lizek atandra who just joined us now for our segment top three with tandra so be back next week this episode was produced by noctula manyati and i'm tidi madia this has been a production for news 24